0: Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8. I'm actually going to begin reading in the verse immediately prior, 753, but the majority of our reading is going to be John chapter 8. I'm going to read 753 through 811, John chapter 753 through 811. This will provide us with a little bit of context for our sermon passage today. Which is Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 through 27 a little bit later. But first, let's look briefly at this small story. John seven fifty-three through John eight eleven. Hear now the word of the Lord. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman, standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one there but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. The Pharisees and scribes, as they often are, are trying to trap Jesus. And so they present him with a particularly different question, a particularly difficult question, rather. You see, on the one hand, they have him trapped by Moses who said that the only right response to a woman caught in adultery is to stone her to death. That is to say, the wages of sin are death. She is a woman deserving of death. And so, will he follow Moses and see that death is brought to the sinner? The trap is that the Romans have forbidden them from carrying out this law of Moses. The civil magistrate of that day, the Roman officials, in order to bring some stability and peace to this troublesome province of Palestine, has forbidden the Jews from executing anyone for religious reasons. That's why the scribes and Pharisees bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. They haven't the authority to execute him. They have to trick Pilate into doing it. That's the problem before Jesus. Are you going to follow Caesar? And let her go free. Or are you going to follow Moses. And see her executed. Jesus responds in a most unexpected way. He ignores them. But he ignores them for very good reason. He's trying to teach them a lesson. He's trying to show them that it's a dumb question. He's trying to show them that he is not beholden either to the law of Caesar or to the law of Moses. For he is king over both. He is trying to establish his preeminence as the foundation and fulfillment of all law and all justice. And so when they continue to poke him and prod him, what does this silence mean? What does this scribbling in the ground mean? What is this weird response? He at last straightens himself up, looks them straight in the eye and says, The first one of you that is not guilty of this sin of adultery, killer, You caught her in the act and you did not bring the man I can only assume you are that man. One by one, they walk away knowing that the wages of sin are death. You see, Jesus is Lord of life and death. And if we go around demanding that he exercise his justice according to the law... We will condemn all the world rightly. And so Jesus turns to her and offers her a different approach. He says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 In Christ there is therefore no condemnation. He forgives. Is she guilty? Yes. Is she deserving of death? Yes. Are all the men who have brought her there that day deserving of death? Yes. And yet, Jesus is willing to forgive. But His forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He says to her, go and sin no more. His forgiveness is sanctifying. Jesus saves her not only from death, He saves her from the sin That brought about the death in the first place. So great is our Savior, He saves us not only from death, He saves us from the sin that deserved death. With this in mind, turn back your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to read this morning from Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 27. Solomon here is addressing his son with the eighth and final essential quality of wisdom. In chapters 1 through 3, Solomon has been giving to his son a foundation on which to understand wisdom. What it is, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's will. How does one get it? By listening to God's word. What happens when you listen to God's word? You become like God. And what is God like? Here are the eight essential qualities in which we, as humans, begin to resemble God when we listen to his word and live a life of wisdom. Here in chapter 7, Solomon gives us that eighth and final essential quality, distance from sin. We call it holiness. Proverbs chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. My son... Keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding your nearest kin. That they may keep you from the immoral woman. From the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house. I looked through my lattice and saw the simple. I perceived among the youths a, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house in the twilight in the evening in the black and dark night. And there was a woman and there a woman met him, with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with impudent face she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone up. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. That book so much, I devoured it. It appears that food is an appropriate metaphor for reading. We've had it said to us, some books should be tasted slowly. Some books should be devoured quickly. Solomon picks up on this metaphor and says, just as food is essential to life, so the Word of God is essential to life. Just as a properly balanced diet produces in us physical health, so the Scriptures produce in us spiritual health. Solomon teaches his son that he needs to know the word of God, specifically Jesus Christ. He needs to read the scriptures in which Christ is given to him, spoken to him. For it is in Christ there is life. For it is Christ who keeps him far from sin and death, that keeps him safe from sin and death. Beloved, this is the good news for us today. That Jesus keeps us far from sin and death. That Jesus keeps us safe from sin and death. And so let us treasure Him. Let us read our Bibles rejoicing in the Jesus who we meet here. Now think about this a little bit with me. Let's look at our text this morning together. Notice in verses 1-3, through Solomon says to his son, first in three parallels, Keep my words, treasure my commands, keep my commands. In these three commands, Solomon says, keep, treasure, keep. This mini-chiasm communicates to us the urgency and importance of having the word of God close to us. That Solomon's instructions, the truths that he is sending to us, should be, he says, within us. We must read the word of God in such a way that it penetrates us. We must listen to the word of God in such a way that it gets deep inside of us. But furthermore, Solomon then says in verse 2 that these commands are to be kept as the apple of your eye. And then in verse 3, binding them on our fingers. And in verse 3, writing them on the tablet of your heart. In putting these three commands against each other with these three metaphors, Solomon illustrates for his son what does it mean to get the Bible inside of you? What does it mean to read it attentively and carefully in a way that actually transforms you? First, if we pay attention to the scriptures in a way that it becomes like the apple of our eye. You see, apple of the eye is just the Hebrew phrase for pupil. That's just their word for that dark center right in the middle that nobody likes to poke unless you wear contacts. And then even then you don't like to do it without the contact on your finger. That very center of the eye is super sensitive because it's where the light gets in. Solomon says, put the scriptures so deep inside of you that you begin to look through them at the world around you. That you see and interpret your sins, your sufferings, your joys, and your triumphs through the apple of Scripture, through the pupil of Scripture. Let the Bible serve as the eye of the soul, seeing the world around you. Secondly, bind them on your fingers, you know, like a pair of gloves. How many of you like to pull weeds around rose bushes without gloves? It's not a lot of fun. Solomon says to his son, put the Scriptures deep within you that they might adorn all the works of your hands. That whatever you do with your fingers, you do it in a biblical way, in a scriptural way. Lastly, write it upon the tablet of your heart. That is, permanently impress the truth of the Bible deep into your heart so that whatever you feel, so that whatever you think, is consistent with the Scriptures. It was observed about John Bunyan that if you cut him, he bled Bible. This is what Solomon is calling us and his son to do. To so read the Scriptures, to so saturate our souls and our thoughts with the Scriptures that they dwell within us and then transform us. This, my friends, is why we have this worship service this way. Did you notice where we got the call to worship? The Bible. Do you notice where we get the songs we're going to sing? The Bible. Do you notice where this sermon and the scripture readings are coming from? The Bible. Do you know where the benediction is going to come from? I'll give you a hint. It's the Bible. Do you know where the doxology is going to come from? The Bible. From start to finish, the only thing we do inside this room on Sunday morning is the Word of God. So that we get it inside us. So that it transforms us. The way we think, the way we see, the way we speak, the way we work, the way we act. Like manner, what are we doing this evening? We're coming together to pray. That we might get the Word of God, Jesus Christ, inside of us. And be transformed by him, by it. What are we doing Wednesday night? Why the shape of this congregation? Why the particular approach to life by this congregation? So that the word of God is preeminent in all that we do. You see the back of your bulletin? There's a worship guide there. It's based on the upcoming order of worship. It's so that you can have something all this week to read to sing, to pray, so that getting Jesus into your life, into your heart, is always available to you. Private worship, public worship, family worship—that there is this rhythm to the world by which we attend to God, we pay attention to God, we receive God into us through His scriptures, and He transforms us and makes us like Himself. This, my friends is the very shape of this church. It is the very shape of this worship service because it is to be the very shape of a Christian. It is how our life is the only way to live. Between the three commands, get the Scriptures inside of you, and the three metaphors so that the Scriptures come out from you into your life, is this one word in verse 2, and live. And live. Life is not found in filling the stomach. Jesus makes this plain when he has temptation in the wilderness. He says to Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Our life is not found in what we earn. Our life is not found in what we eat. Our life is found in what God says. And that is why we must structure our schedules order our lives to get the words of God in the preeminent place in our life. Because life is in those words. Because life is born and sustained by those words. By contrast, Solomon notes that those words, when missing, lead to death. When we leave off The centrality of the scriptures, the essentialness of Christ at the core of our being, we are consigned to death. He says in verses four and five, Say to wisdom, You are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Solomon is again, for the third time in eight uh, segments, noting the problem with sexual sin. That wisdom, treated like a sister that is embraced as a spiritual sibling, the word of God brought into our lives like a sibling, close to us, dwelling with us, will save us, keep us distant from the immoral woman. As I mentioned last week, this doesn't have to be restricted to woman. To say immoral woman simply means that Solomon is speaking to his son, a male, who has to worry about women. But vice versa is also true. Surely you have seen in our society that there are plenty of immoral men. There are plenty of men who will seduce and flatter with their words in order to get the immorality for which they seek. In either case, Solomon is warning his children, male or female, To be close to wisdom, close to the Word of God, close to the Jesus Christ we find in the Word of God. In order to be far from the immoral woman. Far from her seductive and flattering words. What saves us from that deep desire to sin? The reality is, my friends, that immorality is seductive. It is flattering. It's why we do it. We sin because sin is desirable. Because sin is tempting and appealing. And so Solomon warns him. The only way... Or unintentionally. We don't know. What Solomon teaches here is whether he is intentionally exposing himself to harm. Or whether he has unwittingly wandered into this perilous place. The risk is nonetheless real. And in so doing, Solomon illustrates for his son the power of the word of God to reshape our geography. Let me say it this way. If you are busy with private worship every morning, personal, uh, sorry, family worship every evening, public worship every Sabbath morning, prayer meeting Sabbath evening, midweek group Wednesday night, Once in a while, gathering with a prayer partner or Bible reading partner, your life has a distinct shape to it. A geography to it that gives little room for Satan. Little room for sins like this. I mean, as many of us say, gee, I've never run into a woman quite like this. It's like, have you been at a bar at 1 a.m.? You've avoided the geography that exposes you to this harm. This is what scripture does as it geographizes, can I say that? As it reshapes the geography of our minds and of our hearts and of our lives in the center of our being, reshapes how we go through the world and which parts of it we go through. When we put the scriptures and Christ revealed in the scriptures in the center of who we are and what we're doing, he reshapes what we do and how we see it. He reshapes the way we move in the world. But secondly, Solomon sees not only this foolish young man, he not only sees this youth devoid of understanding, he also sees the woman there. A woman who is a predator. A dangerous woman. One dressed as in, the clo- in the clothing of a harlot, but within having a cl- who has come and bound the strong man He has come and shackled and chained the power of sin. That though Satan go about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, though this immoral woman goes about every street of the city seeking someone to seduce, the reality is that Christ dwells in us, delivering us from the power of sin. We must attend to Him, treasure Him. Delight in him and these his scriptures. When we turn to the word of God throughout our life and there receive the word of Christ, it keeps us safe from the geography of sin. But what is more, it keeps us safe from the power of sin. Lastly, it keeps us safe from the lies of sin. Notice that she speaks to him in what Solomon calls enticing speech. She speaks to him with flattering lips. The inducement, the seduction lies in three deceits. First, in verses 13, 14, and 15, she pretends to be a good and devout woman. She grabs him, kisses him, and with an impudent or bold or contrary face, she lies to him. Eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, she openly, brazenly, boldly says, I was just at worship. I'm a good Christian girl. I just presented my offerings and fulfilled my vows. I'm a good person. You can trust me. She deceives and seeks to deceive with this fraudulent display of religious devotion. What is more, she tells him in verse 15, I came out to meet you, I have sought you, and I have found you. With these three yous, she emphasizes, you are the one, I'm devoted to you, I'm looking for you. Never mind she's a prostitute, she was looking for anything that moved. She was not serious about him. She was not devoted to him any more than she was devoted to God. If she was a devout and faithful woman, she'd be at home awaiting her husband, not seeking this young fool. But when we set scripture within our heart, we see through these lies. We see the fiction of this pretended religion that knows not Christ or his sanctifying power that thinks that religious performance on Sunday morning somehow covers over a sinful self-indulgence Monday through Saturday. Say the right words, follow the right traditions, and we can simply cover over the wretched lives we have made. But the Scriptures tell us otherwise. Christ tells us otherwise. He illumines us to the reality of this lie that is sin. And so too, he trains us, Christ and his scriptures train us to see the lie that she then brings so seductively about her opportunity. Notice here in verses 16 and 17 and 18, she tells him, you can trust me, I'm a devoted and faithful person, which is a lie. Then she says, I have spread my bed with tapestry." colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She builds up this three-phase deceit. First, she claims that the bed is prepared with beautiful tapestries and linen. Second, she claims that the bed is filled with beautiful things. Beautiful sights, beautiful smells. But then thirdly, she says, in that beautiful bed, with its beautiful sights and its beautiful smells, we can delight ourselves in the beauty of love. My friends, the only thing this woman cannot offer him is love. This is a lie. It is not love. What is more, it is not a bed. It is a grave. And these linen cloths are not blankets. They're burial shrouds. And these three spices are not scents of love. They are the aroma of death. She is lying to him. Look how beautiful this is. Look how desirable this is. And with the eyes of Scripture and with the heart of Christ, we look at it and we say, I'm sorry, I see a corpse in a grave. Where do you see love in a bed? I see not love, I see not flesh, I see skeletons in a grave. This is the life-giving nature of Christ and His Scriptures. The third lie that is laid bare is the lie of a lack of accountability. Verses 19 and 20. My husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money. He will not come home until the appointed day. In this seductive, enticing, and flattering speech, she tries to convince this young man that there will be no accountability. No one will ever know. There will be no consequences, no results. Again, with the Word of God within us, with the eyes of Christ about us, we see clearly the lie of this. It is not true. Sin will find us out. Sin will lay us bare and expose us to the death we deserve. In this way, Solomon trains his son so carefully. My son, read the scriptures. Read them in a way that gets Jesus inside of you. That transforms you into a lover of Jesus and into the likeness of Jesus. For only in that sanctifying approach to scripture are you thus empowered to see the lies and deceit of sin and to put them away. He concludes and capstones all this together in verses 21 through 23. By this deceit, by this lie, pretending that sin is healthy and good, pretending that it is holy and right and fair, she seduces him and causes him to yield. Solomon says he is like an ox. Like a fool, your ESV says, like a stag. He is like a bird. That is to say... He is clueless to his desperate and deadly hour. He does not know that the wages of sin are death. He does not know that the cost of his crime will be his life. He doesn't know until the arrow is sunk into his liver. He does not know until the axe is at his neck. He does not know until the snare is about his feet. But my friends, Solomon offers his son another way through life. A way to live. A way to live apart from the executioner's axe. away way far from the archer's arrow. away far from the fowler's snare. To live in Christ. And to have Christ live in us. You see, if his word abides in us, As we abide in Him, John 15, then we will bear much fruit. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. This is the essential nature of attending to worship and listening to the sermon. This is the essential nature of coming to prayer meeting, of being part of a Christian fellowship, and day to day putting our eyes and our hearts between the pages of Scripture That we might learn there Jesus, the life of Jesus, the life-giving sanctification and salvation of Jesus. That we might see our sin as the cause and leader of death and know in Christ our life. So Solomon says now, now therefore listen to me, my children. Notice the change from the singular to the plural. The passage begins... With my son, but it ends with my children. For throughout this introductory section, Solomon is intending to address not only his descendant, Jesus Christ, who will faithfully obey this passage to the full, he is intending to address all those who are united to Christ by faith, that we might know what Christ is doing in us. My friends, this passage is simultaneously a presentation of the perfections of Christ. And the perfection which Christ is working in you. And giving to you. This is the sweet glory of our Savior. That when we listen to Solomon, we are actually listening to Jesus. And when we are looking at the wisdom of Solomon, we are actually looking at the life of Christ. Here are his Perfect righteousness. So pay attention to the words of my mouth. So pay close attention to your Bibles. Read them carefully. Read them in a way that they get inside of you and change the way you think. Read in a way that they get inside of you and change the way you work. The way you talk. The way you walk. The way you act. Do not let your heart go to her ways. No, let your heart be united to the way of God in Christ. Do not stray into her path. No, follow the good shepherd who leads you beside streams of living water and green pastures. For she has wounded many and slain by all of her were the strong men. She is capable of destroying the strong, capable of destroying the many. Indeed, you are no match for your sin. And so we need the Scriptures to give us Jesus. Jesus. And so we need to attend to the Jesus given to us in the scriptures. For her house, the house of sin, is the way to the grave, descending to death. My friends, when we live in the fellowship of sin, when we live in the company, the house of sin, we are dining in the grave. We are living with the dead. But Christ has come. But Christ has come and fulfilled Proverbs chapter 7. But Christ has come and shown to us his perfections. Fulfilling all the law of God for us. And then training us in the obedience to the law. What do you love most in life? What do you give your most time and your most attention to? To what do you attend? When we say Christ preeminent, do we mean it? When we say Jesus is first, do we mean it? Does that actually inform the shape of our schedule? Does that actually inform the allocation of our time? I submit to you that the specific structure of this congregation has been designed to put Jesus at the center. And to assist one of us and all of us to put Jesus at the center. There is one last incredibly rich and powerful illustration of this phenomenon I want you to see. It's right here. Do you remember what I said first? You are what you eat. My friends, eat this word. For it is Christ given to you. Study it. Love it. Did you guys see the email? I couldn't pick this timing better. Like, Jesus knew that the deacon should send out an email about scripture memorization program the day before I preach a sermon on the importance of getting the word of God in your life. Jesus is going to tell someone here to memorize scripture. He sent the email. He's preached the sermon. My friends, get the word of God within you. And the supper also. For in this way, he gives us Christ. Your friends, it is Christ who keeps us from sin and death. It is Christ who keeps us from sin and death. So keep Christ. So treasure Christ. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful word. We give you thanks for what Solomon saw out his window that night, that he saw clearly that the wages of sin are death. We give you thanks, O God, that there is nevertheless eternal life in Jesus Christ. And pray that we would attend to the words of life, these teachings which communicate to us Christ, that we would know Him, rejoice in Him, feast upon Him, and be transformed by Him. We thank you for our Jesus and pray now, Father, that you would bless us, that we would be attentive to him, listening to him, receiving him within us, and that, Father, we would follow faithfully after him. We thank you for this supper that represents these truths to us, signifies and seals them that as we partake of it, we taste and see you are good. And we pray that you would bless the supper. That it would confirm to us the words we have heard. Father we give you thanks for these sweet joys. In Jesus name. Amen.